Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My name is Richard Bliss. I'm the host. You're listening to episode 100. And today we have a special uh, episode. We're videotaping this one. I guess videotape is such an old, archaic word. But we are recording this interview with a special guest, Mr. David Brin. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here and uh, 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 talking to people who um, are at the cutting edge of new ideas and new ways to fund them. Well, that's and, and that really is kind of what we're talking about, um, cutting edge. You have written, for those of my guests, there's only a few of them, who don't know who you are. You have been writing, studying, researching, commenting on trends in our society for many years, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's what I'm paid to do. Uh, I, I got my union card as a physicist um, studying what's an aspect. But the... Um, but the thing that I, you know, do for a living now is um, pundit technological change and things like that. So let's talk about that the pundit role that you had. Um, you've written several books. One uh, was Earth, which was very popular, and, and some have said predicted the World Wide Web, email spam, things like that. A book that came out in 1998 that I enjoyed, a, tra- a nonfiction, Transparent Society, which really addressed the increasing concept of, of observation of cameras everywhere and that type of thing. And now you've come out with your most recent book, which was Existence in 2012. Oh, right. Well, you know, I, my, the career that makes the biggest difference is, of course, uh, my career as an author. Right. That's uh, novels, novels, things like that. The, um, the, the 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 novel Postman got turned into a movie by Kevin Costner, for example. Um, and so the um, Earth, and my new novel Existence, they are novels that uh, explore the near immediate future, a little beyond the immediate future, uh, the thirty forty year projection, which is re- which is one of the most difficult things that uh, science fiction tries to do. And then other novels of mine uh, go farther out, you know, the talking dolphins in space. What, what, what might happen if we uplift uh, our creatures to our level of sapiens? Will we treat them well? Will we make them members of our civilization? That sort of um, thought experiment, Gedanka experiment, that we do with the prefront lobes, these little nubs above the eyes. Um, and we know that that's the case because... People who have had prefrontal lobotomies lose interest in the future. They're still intelligent, but they don't do this thought experiment, uh, Gedanken experiment, as Einstein called it, um, that's involved in that wonderful thing we do called anticipation, where you uh, ask yourself, what might happen if I broach this idea at today's meeting? What might happen if I wear this today? What might happen if I try to run this yellow light? Um, the thought experiment is becoming more important to us as we charge into the future. We move ahead toward the future. Uh, and so we need to use these prefrontal lobes. Apparently mine are a little hypertrophy because it's how I earn all my living, either writing novels about the future, either the distant future where we see what might happen if we uplift animals or the near future where in earth, for example, they credited predicting a whole bunch of things. Uh, my fans keep a wiki to keep track. 
predictions for that one novel. But um, I, I, we're members of a civilization that actually appreciates anticipation now. It didn't used to be the case. In most past societies, it was considered highly suspect, which is why I'd much rather have a free bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Ah, uh, okay. Let's talk about that because you have uh, generated some controversy with some of the things that you've written when it comes to uh, that theme, that theme of looking forward, looking back, because uh, I'm, I'm talking about your uh, your your writing about Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and, and what you see, I guess, as backward-looking themes of elitism versus your belief in, I'm going to hopefully not put words in your mouth, but your belief in the power of, of society and crowds and groups of people to come together and solve their own problems. Well, you know, you said, you said a mouthful there, and there's an awful lot going on in what you have to say. Um, for example, there's the whole notion of what are the basic attractor states of human civilization? Uh, the most fundamental attractor state is the one that's reinforced by Darwin, and that is uh, over oligarchy, uh, pyramids of power in which a few lorded it over all of those below and controlled the information flow and restricted the rights of the sons and daughters of the poor to get the education and knowledge that they needed in order to compete, because, of course, that would engender competition with their own children. This was the family mode of 99% of cultures. And in my studies of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, I have to tell you that of the hundred or so explanations from Fermi Paradox, that's the mystery of why we don't see aliens. Of the hundred or so explanations, I think that's one of the strongest. That is, that all, almost alien races fall into the same trap that 99% of human civilizations did, and that's futile. That's this pyramidal social structure. Uh, we're the, the only times in human history, Periclean Athens was another one, in which we set up a diamond social structure in which the well-off middle class is dumped and it outnumbers the poor. It outnumbers the rich, it outnumbers the poor, and the children of the middle class always have a chance to be rich, and the children of the poor always have a chance to be middle class. Yeah, this should be our flag. It's called the American dream. Uh, that diamond should be, should be on our flag. Uh, it's what we stand for. And, of course, it's always under threat. Because every generation, there are attempts to hammer this diamond. It may not be stable. Back into a pyramid of privilege. And so, uh, attempts and, and, are happening right now in America. And so this can be actually quite benign. So I have daughters. And so the idea, this whole idea of the princess culture that has developed, particularly recently with the Disneyfication of the concept of princesses, you know, every girl wants to grow up and be a princess. Well, uh, a lot of guys want to grow up to be a Mad Max. That's one of the reasons why these uh, post-apocalyptic things are so popular. I did a post-apocalyptic story, uh, The Postman, that Kevin Costner made into that film. By the way, for those of you interested, I think that it's visually and musically stunningly gorgeous. It actually is very big-hearted and captured a lot of the themes of my book, and it is execrably 
Um, but you know, what can you do? I had no power. And gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. Eh, one can live with gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. The, the, the point is, as I, <coughs> as I pointed out in some very popular online essays about Tolkien and about Star Wars, it is bizarre, as you point out, that great-grandchildren of the heroes of the Western Enlightenment who rebelled against feudalism, who rebelled against oligarchy and the pyramidal social structure, who gave us the opportunities to markets and science and democracy and justice to harness human competition and create this cornucopia of wealth that doesn't really fit in at all into the left-right political spectrum at all. We should abandon that stupid metaphor, if for no other reason because French. But, <laughs> but the point is that the great-grandchildren of these Enlightenment heroes who saved us from kings and secretive nasty wizards and domination by the priests and the lords, the great-grandchildren of these heroes run flocking off to fantasy stories and... and uh, everybody's uh, a prince and everybody's and a hero. And, yeah. I love this from Lord of the Rings. Wouldn't it be great if you were the wizard or king who had a glassy globe on your table that you could use to see faraway places and communicate with other owners of the few Palantir glassy globes in real time at great marvelous distances? Sorry, it's not a globe. It's a flat screen, and everybody has it. Here we are. Eliminates the the pleasure of thinking I would get to be the princess, I would get to be the wizard, I would get to be the lord. Well, sorry, instead have to be something else. It's called a citizen. And so here so, we are. So here so, we see today it actually starting to manifest. Some of the things that you wrote about as fiction or near fiction is now starting to be a reality. Yeah. In this war well, of ideas. Uh, we're often asked about our predictive score, and I have a really good one. My fans keep a wiki keeping track of the predictions that I made just in 1988's Earth. But prediction is never the real goal of the science fiction author. Um, it's true that if you predict really well and very, very frighteningly, you can create the highest form of science fiction, which is the self-preventing prophecy. The greatest examples of that would be Orwell's 1984, which girded millions of people with suspicion of authority and constantly worrying about where the next possible big brother would come from. But under normal American politics, which we don't have now, uh, we're in stage three of the American Civil War right now, but under normal American politics, a decent Republican is worried about Big Brother arising from snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. A decent Democrat is worried about uh, Big Brother arising from conniving oligarchs and um, faceless corporations. Under normal circumstances, the proper response to that dichotomy is, duh, you're both right. If your instincts are to watch out for 
crimes by bureaucrats, great. You keep them accountable. I'm going to watch out for the corporations. We'd be watching each other's backs. One of the reasons we've been plunged into stage three of the American Civil War is so that this process can stop working. And so that a third of Americans, half of Americans, are vigorously defending the right of corporations and uh, oligarchs to reestablish a pyramidal social structure. Uh, This is not normal politics. But to get back to the main point, uh, Orwell girded millions of people with the metaphor of Big Brother. And this may have prevented tyranny. Back when the USSR, when the left really was a threat, uh, Orwell invade against its possibilities for tyranny. And the same thing with McCarthyism. This, 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 this metaphor was powerful. And it may have prevented its own future from coming true. The same might be said of Ray Bradbury's wonderful book, Fahrenheit 451. And the, the greatest of all films was a science fiction movie, Dr. Strangelove, which arguably saved all of our lives by preventing the future that it predicted. Just scaring Just, the crap out of us. Yeah. Now, now, having said that, very few science fiction stories are best known for their predictions coming true. What we instead do is poke in the sand in front of us to see what may be out there. Because the advantage and the disadvantage of a Periclean civilization, this diamond-shaped one that's based on science and egalitarianism and competition and charging ahead and markets and democracy, more science, is that we charge into the future, but that exposes us to all the quicksand pits, the punji stakes, the landmines that may have been responsible for the annihilation of other previous civilizations around the galaxy, and that might explain the Fermi paradox. So what is the answer to that? In my new book, Existence, I give fair voice and fair arguments to those in our society who are pushing the notion of relinquishment or renunciation or of slowing down. The greatest voice for this was Michael Crichton, who relentlessly in his books and stories showed science being pushed ahead too fast by people um, who make mistakes and therefore a lot of people in the book die and everything gets put back. However, in every single Michael Crichton story, the real failure mode was the fact that these new things were done in secret. And if they weren't done in secret and openly, then they would have been criticized in science fiction novels and in the public. And a lot of the errors would have been found. For instance, in Jurassic Park, someone would have pointed out to the Disney guy in Jurassic Park, why are you making any carnivores at all? A billion people will pay you to come and see herbivores and give you 10 years to refine your security systems. Then make one T-Rex. A billion people will come back. Right. Uh, But you see in a lot of these stories, the propeller of the plot is some stupid mistake that causes a lot of blood to be spilled. And instead of doing what I try to do, and that is saying, yes, we need to have blood spilled, we need to have action, 
We need mistakes to make be made, but let's have them be smart mistakes, uh, mistakes that happen despite our being a member of an intelligent civilization that tries to poke sticks in the minefield in front of it as we charge ahead. And that's the role that science fiction best plays, is that stick poking ahead as we charge into the future, as we say, up yours, Michael Crichton, we're going to charge ahead because that's the only way we can get the stars. So in your book, your nonfiction book, though, Transparent Society, you kind of address this issue not from a science fiction writing standpoint, but from a standpoint of, look, this concept of privacy, the way that it's being trying to push it in the public is a fallacy. And that... Well, it's not that privacy itself is a fallacy. In the Transparent Society, I have an entire chapter that I dedicate to how important privacy is to human beings. But the fact that we might be fooled into panicking and giving up the thing that we need most in order to have privacy, in order to have freedom. The book's title is, full title is, The Transparent Society, Will Technology Make Us Choose Between Freedom and Privacy? And it is the only public policy book from the 20th century that's still not only in print, but selling more copies every year. So it's um, almost like you wrote a non-fiction, science fiction book that is now becoming true. I think one of the reasons is becoming drones, surveillance equipment, the ability for me to watch and record anything, anytime, anywhere, and then publish it instantly to, uh, to be viewed anytime, anywhere by anyone. That's kind of what that book was about, but at a time where that was still almost science fiction. Well, well, yeah, well, some things were starting to come into play at that time. In Britain, uh, London had 100,000 old tube-based cameras in uh, around the city when I lived there in 1986. That made me think real hard about where we were heading. And... People are right to have a big brother instinct that this could lead to the telescreen in, in 1984. This could lead, lead to the elites of society, whether you fear the elites of the left or you fear the elites of the right, um, gaining impossible to overcome control over us. But the, the thing about the telescreen in um, 1984 that is most disturbing is not the fact that the state can look at you. The elites in human society were always able to look down at the rest of us. It's called surveillance, down from above. But the fact that the telescreen did not look both ways. If the telescreens looked both ways and all of the officials of the party in 1984 were under surveillance by the proletarians all the time, being watched, every word they said, well, you wouldn't start out with an equality of power. The, the party heads would still have the guns. Would you honestly think it wouldn't be a different world in 10 years? Of course it would be. The fact is that the thing that we need to be worried about is not whether the elites can look at us. They always will be able to look at us. I defy you to name one time in human history when anybody ever blinded the elites, the closest we've come is right now, where many of our government elites obey laws that restrict what they see. But the reason why they obey those laws is because they're under supervision. 
because they worry about being caught. The thing that maintains freedom is called surveillance. I helped coin this term. Sue in French means from below. Sur means from above. Surveillance means maintaining our power and ability to look back at the mighty. Now that we know we can do. As Robert Heinlein said, um, the chief thing achieved by privacy laws is to make the spy bugs smaller. It doesn't stop elites from looking at you. However, if you pass laws that let us look at the mighty, then there will still be some collusion by elites, some of the elites of big money and oligarchy and, and, and corporate elites and government elites. Some of them will find little corners to skulk in where we can't see them, but it restricts the size of their conspiracies. It keeps them worried. If you have generous whistleblower awards, it keeps the heinousness of what they're plotting against us down to a level where they know that they can keep their henchmen loyal to them. I mean, this is the great flaw in that spare change notion that the, uh, you know, it sounds like I attack fight and, and, and I do think they've gone insane. Um, but here, let me attack the insane branch of the left by saying this spare change thing about, oh, the government, hundreds of government of uh, operatives and officials spent months planting explosives in the World Trade Center towers. Uh, showing competence, skilled split-second competence that they've never shown in any other government endeavor in history. And under circumstances where if one of them blew the whistle, that one would be a media star and a hero and a millionaire, and the others would be hanged. That really works. So, all right, we're almost out of time, and, it's, and David, we could go on talking. Oh, well, people who, who see the Transparency Society, go to page 206. At the end of um, when 9-11 happened, I got emails from all over the world saying P206, exclamation point. And page 206 of um, In Light of 9-11 uh, becomes a real Twilight Zone moment. And that's kind of what I wanted, why I wanted to have you on the show, because um, traditionally we're just talking about small-level crowdfunding concept. It's usually what we're, we're talking about. But you've been talking about the power of crowds. Because people have asked me, I get emails, is crowdfunding a bubble? Is this whole crowdfunding concept just going to go away? And, and I've been a fan of yours for many years. I have a hard copy of Transparent Society. bought it when it was published because you did the article originally in Wired magazine. Uh, which I read in the edition. So a long time, and I looked at this and said, no, it's not a bubble. And one of the reasons is, is because a lot of the things that you've been writing about that say, no, this is, it is a war that you're saying, and this is just one way that we're continuing to find the power to manifest ourselves as, as society and not have that power taken away. Gatekeepers, not allowing the gatekeepers to kind of run things. Well, in, in my new novel, Existence, I portray um, a positive trends in the, in the development of what people call smart mobs, the um, uh, ability of private citizens to self-organize 30 years better than we can now. I mean, you can, uh, in, in, one, in one chapter, this woman, uh, Anna Zeppelin, um, that's approaching Washington, D.C., suspects that there may be a terror plot. And she clicks her teeth 
and her glasses light up with information and smart mobs. She can see that, that experts on Zeppelins, uh, hobbyists, conspiracy nuts, people are swarming in to join in and each taking roles in collating and, and applying analytical programs and techniques on the things that she, she is their hands and eyes uh, on the scene. And they say, turn your head left. Um, uh, look a little closer at that. Um, now climb up this uh, stairway. Um, we'll get you the codes to get up into the, into the main part of the Zeppelin. Um, it's, it's a collaborative citizen posse that would be impossible in any other civilization but that might be possible in our future. And that adds strength to a civilization that believes in citizenship. And I'll provide you with some links to some of the essays uh, about citizen power that I've uh, written. And, and in fairness, I get called back to D.C. frequently to discuss these issues. There are many sincere members of our civil service and the military, CIA, and all that, who are very interested in these concepts. They're not threatened by them. They actually want to see them come true. Well, David, we could easily go on and on about all of this stuff. I certainly, uh, we're out of time, and I certainly appreciate you taking a few minutes to kind of talk about this concept that you have written about for so long, the power of our society to affect change as a society. I certainly appreciate you being on the show. Well, it's sure thing, uh, Richard, and some other time. Uh, good luck to you all out there, and uh, let's make the crowd-sourcing citizen-level dream come true. Well, I think good we're getting there, and, and you're kind of leading the way. Thanks again, David. All right.